Today's text comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, starting from verse 13 through the end of chapter 6. Because it is a very long passage, and we are going to read all of it, um, we've put together sort of a breakdown of the six parts of this of this passage. The first passage, starting in ver- um, chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, um, Joshua talks a little about, about who the commander of the, of the Lord's army is. Moving on to the next section in which God tells of how Jericho will be delivered to Israel. Starting with verse 3, um, he outlines what the process is, days 1 through 6 and finally through day 7. Um, starting in verse 6, he talks about what actually happens in the first six days of their march around Jericho. And uh, starting on verse 15, um, we, uh, Joshua talks about day 7 and what happens when the walls fall. And finally, in verses 26 through 27, they wrap up what they find and what happens afterwards. So starting in Joshua chapter 5, which can be found on page 154 of your Pew Bible. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out, and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up. Every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and called and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city, with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. And he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given the city, the city and all that is in it, to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. 
but keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her mother and her father and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced his solemn oath, Cursed be the Lord, before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay his foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up his gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. May God bless the reading of his word. So before we look together at uh, Joshua 6, I wanted to add my voice to Charlene's announcement. A couple of things about Awana. I was temporarily lead pastor here when they started the Awana program. And a couple of leaders from the Chinese side came to me and said, look, we would like to do something more uh, intentional with the children that are here Friday night while their parents are in fellowship group on the Chinese side. Rather than just, you know, daycare, we'd like to do something more intentional with them. And, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to have people volunteer for an active ministry. I was happy to encourage it, but I said, I can't help you with it. I got my hands full. So they went off and started it. And sure enough, I mean, it starts quickly. It was 60 people, then 60 kids, then 100. (laughs) And Charlene was honest. The place is a zoo sometimes. Uh, But it's extraordinary. You know, my son went away to a Christian college after having grown up in a missionary pastor's home. And he said, you can really tell the difference between the kids who've had something like Awana and the kids who haven't, because their foundation is so deep. Now, some kids will accept Christ at a young age and stay in their faith all their lives. Uh, My wife led my older son to Christ, and he stayed with Christ basically all his life. But some won't ever become Christians, but they still have that solid foundation. So later on in life, when they're teenagers or later, when they become Christians, they're already got, they're deeply rooted immediately. So it's an extraordinary ministry. And on top of that, because we're looking after the kids, the parents who are happy to be relieved of the responsibility are then obliged to join the fellowship groups upstairs. And so we end up seeing some parents become Christians because we nurtured their kids. It's an extraordinary ministry of this church, an extraordinarily important reason why we need to build a gym. Uh, And if you have a heart for this kind of ministry to kids, you know, you have to have a long-term vision. You might not see the results immediately, but you are building for an eternity. It's an extraordinary thing. And I can't get too far without my notes, so excuse me for a moment. 
Okay. Now, I tell you a story. Well, this story from Joshua is uh, long, but it's all one story. Now, here's why it's long is because they didn't read it. Mostly it was read to them. And so they'd have to sit and listen, and then it moves step by step by step by step. So it slowly moves on. And it's long because it was an exciting story for them. Now, there's several different ways we can go with this, but you can't do several things in one sermon. So I'm going to look at, one, look at it from one direction. You know, one of the main idea in this story. But before we get there, let me tell you a, a story about life, you know, from life, real life. Uh, Bruce Olson is one of the more spectacular, has one of the more spectacular missionary stories. If you haven't read Bruce Olson's book, um, entitled uh, Brucho, in English it looks like it's called Bruchko, but I've heard him speak, it was Brucho. Or maybe for this cross, I'll kill you. Or if you want to know what it is, let me know. I'll, email me, I'll send you the link. Extraordinary story. I'll just tell you one piece, one little vignette from his story, one little anecdote. More recently, he's been in, Latin, in South America working among a, a previously unreached tribal group. And more recently, after the first book came out and, and before the second one, you know, about 10 years ago maybe, he was kidnapped by FARC rebels because he's out in the jungle working among the tribes and he's, over the course of 40 or 50 years, he's built up a lot of influence and the, and the rebels captured him because they wanted him to get the Indians to work with the rebels so that they could oppose the central government in Colombia. And he refused to be involved in the political and so they, you know, kept working on him, trying to persuade him for months. And he refused. So finally they decided they were going to torture him. And maybe, you know, he'd seen other people, other hostages tortured to death. And so he didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Now, as it turns out, the Indian tribe that he was working with, the Indian people group he was working with, have a tonal language. And so in times of crisis, they can actually whistle the language and not just speak it. You know, if, if you're surrounded by people that might overhear or that might realize that you're talking a language, then they can whistle the language. So it fits into the story. Anyway, he's been tortured. He's laying there at night wondering if he's going to die and thinking maybe that would be an advantage. And he hears a whistling in, in the trees, you know, a bird he doesn't recognize, and though he lives in a jungle. And something sounded odd and familiar about the bird. It turns out the bird was actually singing multi-long language. But not like a parrot does, not mimicking, but actually talking to him. So he doesn't know what's going on. Maybe he's hallucinating. But this goes on for quite some time, you know, over a period of an hour or more. Eventually, he was released by the rebels. Well, no, eventually the Indian, the Multilong got together with other uh, uh, native groups and and went to the rebels and said, if you don't release this guy, we're going to work with the government against you. So the rebels let him go. And he went back to the uh, people he was from, and he said, at one point, he called in some of the elders and said, you know, this happened. I, I don't know what this is all about. Do you, what, what's this? And they said, of course it happened. And that's how we knew uh, that you were still alive. Is we sent this spirit to you. And the spirit took the form of a bird. We sent the spirit to you. He checked up on you. He came back over 100 miles distance and told us that you were still alive. So then we knew we could organize and pressure the rebels to let you go. And 
Olson kind of scratched his head and he said, he didn't talk with them much more about this kind of thing. He says, they know a whole lot more about the spirit world than I know about the spirit world. This stuff here that goes on, I can't understand and I just left it with them at that. So the point of the story is this. There is a spirit world. And, you know, we've been trained through school, and particularly those who have done science or philosophy, we've been trained to understand things in only one of two ways. We can either understand things empirically through experiments that can be reduplicated and studied in a lab, or we can understand things rationally, philosophically, deduce things logically. But if we can't test it experimentally, and if we can't deduce it logically, we're really crippled. You know, our strengths make us very powerful in some areas of life and very weak in others. So there's a whole spiritual dimension to life that empiricism and rationalism, that experimenting and logic won't help us with. Now, if you happen to have a mystical bend, and we have a couple of people like that, then, then you can be in tune with these things more readily. But if you happen to be rational, as I tend to be, it's, there's a whole spirit world that's really hard for us to access. I tell you that first story to tell you a second story. Recently, a couple of people in our congregation, and, and this has gone on occasionally, this happens every few years or occasionally, a couple times recently, people will come to me a little confused about something that's happened to them. You know, in the middle of the night, fast asleep, feeling a certain heaviness, a weight on the chest, and sometimes feeling, you know, uh, some constriction around the throat as if there's something sitting on you and, and trying to squeeze the life out of you. And it's still, you know, not awake, right? Still in sleeping. And associated with that, some strong, overpowering sense of evil. While you were still asleep, but being conscious of it. And then, invariably, the, the versions I hear are then calling out, still not awake, calling out simply the name of Jesus. And then the whole thing goes away. And then the people wake up and they're really rattled. Now, I'm familiar with this because it happens a lot in Asia. And my students would tell me about it. And these are not people that talk to each other. You know, I don't talk about it publicly. I mean, I think this may be the first time, maybe the second, but that I've ever mentioned better. Because I, I, some people are easily impressed, easily suggestible, and I don't want to encourage this sort of experience. I don't want to, you know, sow seed of, for future experiences. But my students in Asia would happen, this would happen often. Particularly when they first became Christians, and then, oddly enough, when they first came to Bible college, in the dorms at Bible college when they're sleeping. You know, it got to be the point where it got to be a joke, you know. Come to Bible college and the demons attack you. Uh, but I've also had it happen to me once. Now, you could say I've heard the story, so it's in power of suggestion. But these people who've come to see me, they've never heard about it before. So I tell you the first story to tell you the second story to make the point there's a lot more that goes on in this spirit world than, than we're aware of through logic or through experience or through experiment. There is a spiritual dimension to life that the Bible talks about. 
Now, please, if ever this happens, come, feel free to see me or see Pastor David or our elders, deacons. We can help you with it. Well, no, we can't help you with it. We can point you to somebody who can help you with it. I mean, Jesus can help you with it. And we'll see that in this passage. But I want to tell you, I start you off with that because this is where we're going to end up. And I expect you're going to wonder, how do we get from Jericho to demon oppression or harassment in the middle of the night? So I want you to know where we're headed so you can follow the steps to get there. And this may be a little bit different from the outline because I've thought about it some in the last night. So if you get lost, don't follow the outline. Follow what I'm saying. You'll be all right. First of all, notice how this story starts. It starts with an unusual spiritual encounter. Joshua meets this soldier all decked out for war. And he says... Who are you? Whose side you on? Are you on our side or on our enemy's side? And notice what this angel says to him. Neither. As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now, we're not going to work our way through the whole story. I want to focus on the main central theme. And there's other issues that we'll look at later weeks when we have a chance. You know, you realize, here's one of the issues, let me tell you, we're not going to look at it today, we'll look at it later. You realize they killed every man, woman, child, they killed the dogs and cats, they killed everything except whatever they were going to give to God. You know, the money went into the temple, but the, all the other things they slaughtered. And some of you may find that a little, I hope all of you find that a little troubling. We'll look at that, just not today. What we want to look at is the core event of today's passage. What is the central theme here? Notice how the story starts. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither. As commander of the Lord, I have now come. God's involved in this battle. And then that leads us to notice chapter uh, Joshua 6, verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, before the battle began, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. And then Joshua 6.16, after the battle. What does God say? What does Joshua say? The seventh time around, the priest sounded the trumpet blast. Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Here's the point of this overall narrative. There's a lot of sub-points, but here's the central point. God fought for Israel. In fact... He's quite explicit about it. God is a warrior who fights for Israel. God sends this angel to be the commander. The Lord delivers Jericho into their hands. The Lord gave them the city. God fought for Israel. Now, the question is, what do we do with this? What does it say to us? And and there's a lot of wrong ways we can go with it. First of all, we have a couple of military men in this church, only a couple, but we have a couple of people in this church with military background. If you are in the military and you get converted and you read this Bible passage, what does it say? You know, what conclusion do you draw? Okay, here's how we're going to fight the next battle when I'm in charge. We're going to pray for an encounter with the angel of the Lord and then we're going to march around the battlefield, the outskirts of the battlefield seven times and then the enemy will be ours. It's probably, you know, intuition and the rest of scripture tell us that's not the point of the story. But what is the point of the story? Notice what's happening here. Why did they walk around there seven times? Do you realize this is coming just after they've celebrated Passover? 
right? And the first seven days after Passover, remember Passover is when they kill the lamb and they eat it before the Lord as a reminder of the escape from Egypt. And the first seven days after Passover, they eat unleavened bread. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So why, what's going on here? They're marching seven times around the city. Why? And it happens that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days long. And they've marched for seven days. And it's just after the Passover. What's going on here? You have to know your Bible a little bit better than what we do typically. If you turn back to page 50 in your pew Bible, Exodus chapter 14 and chapter 15. What happened in Exodus? How did they leave Egypt? Remember? The Passover. The original Passover. The first Passover, right? God said, take a lamb, kill it. Put the, lamb, put the blood on the, of the lamb on your, lamp, on your doorposts. And then the angel is going to come through and he's going to kill every firstborn child. But if he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he's not going to kill your children. And so the angel of the Lord passed over, killed the Egyptian firstborn children. And the Egyptian authority and the government said, get out of our country. Go. And so Israel left. And then the Egyptians saw them go and say, hey, this is our, these are our illegal immigrants. You know, this is free labor. We got to get them back. So the Egyptians chased down the Israelites. In the first week, they chased down the Israelites during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then what happened? They caught up with the Israelites. And God parted the Red Sea. And Israel fled through. And then the army chased after them. God brought the waters back, drowned out, down the army. And so what do we read in Exodus chapter 14 about this? We read that God had fought for Israel. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Exodus 14, 13 or 14. Exodus 14, 25. The Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Exodus 14, 30 to 31. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, put their trust in him, and in Moses his servant. Exodus 15, 1. The Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Exodus 15, 21. Miriam sang this song. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he's hurled into the sea. And finally, Exodus 15, 3. Notice this one in particular. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. God is a soldier. He fights for Israel. That's the takeaway. When Israel left Egypt, when the Egyptian army chased them into the wilderness, up against the, their backs were up against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was in front of them, threatening to slaughter them, what is the takeaway? God is a warrior. He fought for Israel. Now we fast forward another generation. And Israel is about to enter the new land. And they will face inhabited cities with fortified walls and a settled population who doesn't want to give up the land. And they celebrate Passover. 
And then comes the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they go out and march one time around Jericho, and then another time around Jericho, and on the seventh day, they march around seven times. And what does God do? God fights for Israel, just like he had done a generation earlier when they left Egypt. God fights for Israel a second time. He fought their way out of Egypt. He fought their way through the Red Sea. And now he fights their way into the new land. God is a warrior. He fights for Israel. And that's the point of this story, Joshua 6. So when it begins in in Joshua chapter 5, 13 and 14, Joshua has this encounter with this angel dressed up in armament. Are you for us or against your enemies? Are, are, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he said. I am a commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come. God is a warrior. He fights for his people. And then in Joshua 6, 2, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Joshua 6, 16. The seventh time around as they marched, the priest sounded the trumpet blast. Joshua commanded the people, Shout for the Lord has given you the city. The point of the exodus from Egypt, the point of Joshua chapter 6, God is a warrior. He fights for his people. Now, what do we do about that? What do we do with it? There's a couple of ways we could go wrong with it. Our current international conflicts are being portrayed from this end as America versus Islam, or at least our president president is trying to keep it from being portrayed as our country versus Islam. And from the Muslim end, or from the overseas, often America is somehow characterized as a Christian country. Now, we know it's not true, and we know it's not Islam that's attacking Christianity, and we know there's not a Christian country. This is a battle between countries and cultures, not between religious faiths. But for whatever reason, whatever its sources, whatever its reason, it's very easy for Americans, particularly mm, misinformed Americans or ill-informed Americans, to conclude that you know, we're looking for God to be on our side. God fought for Israel. Will he fight for us? This is not the point of this story. There's nothing in the New Testament about God being on any nation's side. And we are not God's people as a country, right? We're a secular state. And most of the countries that oppose us, or oppose our country, are also not religious. Or if they're actually meant to be religious, war is not part of their religious tradition. It's just a use of religion to justify war. We learned this so much in World War I when Britain and Germany were at loggerheads and fighting. Whose side is God on in World War I? We gave up that, trying to sort that things out. These are secular governments, secular causes. Another way we can go wrong with this passage is to say, look, Israel was God's people. God fought for Israel. God still fights for Israel. Israel is a secular state. It is not God's people today. The New Testament doesn't portray Israel anymore as God's people. The church is God's people. 
It, this does not say, you know, in 67 war, those of us who were alive in 67, were amazed that Israel could be attacked by so many enemies working a concert and Israel preemptively launch an attack and beat them all. It's spectacular. It's brilliant. But it's secular. It's not because of God. It's secular. What does the New Testament do with this notion that God fights for his people? Let me give you three passages from the New Testament that pick up on this notion. If I were to ask you, what did Christ do for you? A great number of you could tell me this. Christ died for my sins. My sins keep me out of heaven. Christ died. He took my sins on him so I could take his holiness on me. He died to pay for my sins. He died for my sins so that I don't have to die for my sins. This is true. But Christ has done more. One of the things that Christ has done for us is Christ went to war for us. This is the imagery that the New Testament uses. It picks up this notion that God went to war for Israel and beat the Egyptians. It picks up this imagery that God went to war for Israel and beat Jericho, destroyed Jericho. The New Testament picks up that same imagery and says, look, God went to war for us. Jesus went to war for us. In your pew Bibles, page 834, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, we read this. When you were dead in your sins... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. See, so far we're familiar with this, right? But he did more than die for our sins and forgive us our sins. He canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And look at verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. What did Jesus do for us as he died on the cross? Paul says to explain it, what Paul does is he takes the victory procession that any Roman general, when a Roman general scored a major victory, the Senate would invite him to march into the city with his army in tow. And in the front of that army, pushing, being pushed ahead by the army, would be prisoners of war particularly the kings that they had defeated, the soldiers they had defeated, the mighty warriors, they'd all be brought into the city in a victorious procession in front of the army, in front of the general, and they'd be brought up to the temple of Jupiter and they'd be killed as a demonstration of how powerful Rome was. And to a group of people in Colossae who were afraid of the demons and afraid of Satan, afraid of the spirit world, Paul says, this is what Jesus did. He died for your sins, sure. He forgave you, yes. But he did more than that. Jesus is God's warrior. And when the Romans killed him on the cross at that same moment, Jesus was conquering the demon world. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He put them in his victorious processional march through the cross he defeated them, and he made a public spectacle of them. What the idea is here is this. Because of sin, Satan more or less rightly owned the world. It wasn't his by nature, wasn't his by birth, he didn't create it, but he owned the world. And through the cross, his authority over the world, his power, his jurisdiction, his control were broken. 
Because he took away our sins and took away our judgment, Jesus took away Satan's hold over us, his authority to bind us and to afflict us and to harass us, his authority to imprison us, his authority to send us to hell at the end of time. Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities. These are words in Greek for demons. Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. These are spiritual powers, adversarial spiritual powers. Jesus disarmed Satan and the demons. He made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross. Jesus was a warrior even as he died on the cross defeating the demons. Second passage, page 818 in your pew Bible, 2 Corinthians 4, we read this. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Notice, verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6. But God says, light, light shine out of darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the God of glory in the face of Christ. The second way that Jesus became a warrior or becomes a warrior is in our own conversions. Satan does not lightly let go of his captives. And the Bible, the New Testament, describes us as captives of Satan. So anytime any one of us comes to faith, that's preceded by a battle that we don't see, that we may not know about, but that scripture tells us about. Anytime any one of us comes to Christ, it's preceded by a battle between Christ and Satan. It's not a battle of equals, but it's a battle that the demon world fights tooth and nail. It's a battle that Jesus wins, and we have it here. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, but the God who said, light sh let light shine out of darkness, makes his light shine in our hearts. And this is a pro promise not only to us, but it's a promise to the missionaries we send out. Think of it this way. You realize where our missionaries that are going out now in the last, say, five or ten years are beginning to target unreached peoples. No longer are we sending missionaries predominantly to the Han Chinese in China. If we send missionaries to China now, most of them are going to minorities. And in China, that typically means Muslim minorities. Now, the Muslim is one of the biggest parts of the unreached world that is yet to be reached. What do you suppose it's going to take to reach the Muslim world? You should know what it's going to take to reach the Muslim world. Because 150 years ago, it's what it took to reach the Chinese world. And the fact that we have this church here today is evidence that Christ has defeated the power of Satan. Because to reach the Chinese world, to bring us a church like this today, we're not all Chinese, but predominantly Chinese, to bring, to bring this church into existence, it took about 150 years of Protestant missionary work, hundreds of missionary deaths, and thousands of national Christians had to die. Because national Christians die at a much higher rate than missionaries do. Missionaries get deported, national Christians die. What is it going to take to reach the Muslim world? Precedent suggests 
it could take 150 years. Precedent suggests it could take the death of hundreds of missionaries. Precedent suggests it could take the death of thousands of national Christians. But precedent suggests this. It is going to happen. Because the God who says, let light shine out of darkness, shines in human hearts. The God who fought for Israel to get them out of Egypt will fight for his people around the world to get them out of their religions and their cultures. The God who fought for the Chinese to bring them to faith in Christ will fight for the Muslim and Arab worlds to bring them to faith in Christ. Our God is a warrior. And in the Old Testament, he fought on behalf of Israel. But in the New Testament, he fights on behalf of the church and the gospel. And so we read thirdly in Revelation 19, we read of another battle where God fights as warrior. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. John sees Jesus on this horse. With justice he judges and he makes war. This Jesus is a warrior. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he describes the final battle. This is God's word to a church that is small and persecuted, to a church that is being harassed by the Roman government, to a church whose property has been confiscated, to a church where some people have been executed for their faith and where other people will be martyred. And God's word to that church as they face possible death is this. Jesus didn't simply die for your sins. He fought to free you from captivity. And he still fights. And there is a day coming when he will fight the final battle. And history will be all over. But in the meantime, he tells these Christians in Revelation, as you die. He tells the suffering church around the world today that is persecuted. He tells them, as you die, Christ is still fighting on your behalf. And one day, he will take the battle whole. And it will be over. So what does the Battle of Jericho tell us today? First of all, it tells us this. As we send out missionaries, as they work with the national church, as there may be costs to bear harassment, and as there may be lives to be lost, the Battle of Jericho tells us this. God is still a warrior. Jesus fights on behalf of his people. What does it tell us here we don't face that. We, we might get minor harassment or minor criticism. And sometimes we just bring it on ourselves by saying stupid things. But what does it tell us? Just one small illustration of what it tells us. Is if in the middle of the night, 2 or 3 a.m., we feel this heavy presence on our chests, some sense of hands around our neck. We can't breathe. Intuitively, we call out to Jesus, not because we've been taught to or because we're awake, but because the Spirit is within us calling out unto Jesus. 
and we are freed. And we wake up and we're spooked and we go back to the story of Jericho or we go back to Colossians chapter 2 or we go back to 2 Corinthians 4 or we go back to Ephesians 6 and we say, Christ has not only died for my sins, he defeated Satan and freed me from captivity. I don't fear this spirit because my God is more powerful. And when we go and we work with Hopi, who still fight against the spirits, or we go and work with Asian Christians, or Asian, sorry, from the non-Christian background, who still are attacked by spirits, this is the word we bring to them also. Christ has died for your sins, to bring you into a relationship with God, and one day get you to heaven. But Christ has done more. He has defeated the power of Satan. He's freed you from fear of demons. We can stand firmly on the work of Christ and the promises of his word. We need fear no one. Let's pray together. Jesus, we often praise you as the one who lovingly died for our sins so that we can come to God. We praise you this morning as the great, powerful warrior. Even in your death, You won an astounding victory. And in your life and resurrection, you continue to fight on our behalf. We offer you our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.